So tonight I'd like to start with something that's actually not in my notes, but I'm going to talk to you about the power of biblical story, the power of biblical story. And so we're going to start tonight with John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. <laughs> You'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Well, then Lord. Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And then he began to teach them and asked them, Do you understand what I have done for you? So, let's pray. Father, we ask you for your wisdom. We pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth and establish us in it. Help us to understand our part in your great story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This story is very powerful. It tells us about the power of biblical story, the power of biblical story in our lives. We are hardwired for story, and a lot of neuroscientists tell us that. We love stories. That's how we remember ideas and concepts all the way from the time that we're little children until, until we grow old and we sit around and tell our grandchildren our stories, right? And stories give us context, and stories give us understanding, and stories convey truth, and stories instruct us, right? And Jesus here is participating, if you like, in his own story. What is significant about this is Jesus understands his place in God's story. And therefore, he's able to begin to act in concert with his calling, with the desire and plan and will of the Father all the way to his death, his burial and resurrection, in part because he knows his place, right? He knew that the hour had come, so he understood 
the, uh, the, that his story was broken up into evidence segments. And this was one segment of his story. In some ways, he was writing history, right? His story. And so when we participate in God's story for us, we are making history. We are making his story, right? And it's very important for us, like Jesus, to have an understanding of how and where and why is our place, right? I said that funny, but you get what I mean. Jesus knew the hour had come to leave this world and go to the Father. He was going to embark on another journey in his life, returning to the Father, returning to his uh, status as the glorified Son of God. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a great story for us to imbibe, amen? This is how we should do it. If we participate in God's plan, his story for our lives, then we ought also to follow the example of Christ, not only in his suffering, but also in his servanthood, right? And the, the devil was involved in the story. The devil was part of the story in drawing evil along with cords of emptiness, like Isaiah says. Pulling a cart with cords of emptiness, a cart full of evil, is the way Isaiah prophesied about it. Judas is playing his part to betray Jesus. Jesus also understood his place in that he knew the Father had placed all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Do you understand that, that we are part of God's plan, that we participate in God's calling and grace and salvation in our lives, and then we will be on the path. As Pastor Rod said the other night, you know, we could tell where you're going by the road that you're on, right? And so if you're on the road of God's story in your life, then you will be able to participate more fully. It will help give us understanding. One of the things we should do is seek the Lord for understanding as to what is our part, right? Don't neglect, Paul said to Timothy, the prophecies that went on before you when the body of elders laid their hands on you, right? So they wore a good warfare according to the prophecies that went on before you. In other words, God wants to communicate his will and give us understanding and context for our service. If we are short-sighted or if we forget our place in God's story for our lives, then we are all men most miserable. We will fail in our calling, right? We will fail in what God intended us to do. And when something bad happens, a Judas comes along, or we face death because of persecution, or we see evil happening and we're aware that the devil is working, if we lose our understanding of our place in God's story, then we will be caught like in a whirlwind and we won't know where we're going and we will get confused and we'll start blaming the Almighty because of the problems in our lives, right? And we can't, because knowing the story of God gives us understanding and context. Knowing the story of God gives us understanding and context. And this is vitally important because why 
When we wrestle with the problem of evil and calamity and we see evil things happening in our nation, when we wrestle with these ideas or evil things happen to us or misfortune or difficult days, if we understand the context that God will ultimately set everything to rights, amen, to use a British turn of phrase, he will set everything to rights. One day, there will be no more tears or sorrow or crying or pain, right? But until that day, the souls of those who have died for Christ are under the altar crying out to God, O Lord, how long must we wait until you avenge our blood? And so we have to understand, no matter what happens, as Jesus did, I am sent from God. God intends for me to return to him. And in the meantime, I've got to serve my disciples, even the ones like Peter who don't understand what on earth is going on, right? And yet, by God's grace, Peter ultimately grabs a hold of that for which he was called, right? And he begins to serve God and does amazing things. So in some ways, we have to take off the outer clothing of our comfortable ways. And we have to humble ourselves in such a manner that we wrap ourselves only in that which is necessary in life. And we take the tools that we have present with us, a basin of water, a towel, a humble heart. And we use them to bless others who also are following in the footsteps of Jesus as we have followed Christ. Amen? As Paul said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Are you really going to wash my feet? You better believe it. Jesus will do stuff to us and with us and in us and through us even when we don't understand the outcome. Even when we lack context for what he wants us to do with the knowledge and the activity he's trying to exemplify to us. Amen. The Bible's full of stories. And we all love stories. Stories help us make sense out of the stuff of life. Stories convey lessons. Story in Bible, in the Bible, why is the Bible full of stories? Because they're timeless. Stories are timeless. And they help us so that we won't fall for the devil's false narratives, nor the world's false narratives. The world also has a story. The flesh also has a story. The devil also has a story. And we must daily choose to listen to God's stories. Why are there stories in the Bible? I think one of the reasons is God wants to give us an opportunity for long contemplation in order for us to embrace the purposes of God. He said to Joshua, meditate on these things. Meditate in my word day and night. Uh, the scripture says elsewhere, meditate on these things and the Lord will give you understanding in all things. God wants to give us long contemplation on his stories. It's important that we know the stories. Those of you who grew up attending Sunday school got the benefit of story. 
We think of the stories of Hebrews 11, the great, uh, you know, museum of faith or the great hall of heroes of faith. We think of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. These are long contemplative stories. They tell in two minutes, but they lasted a lifetime, generations. Our lives do too. Abraham waiting his long-promised son, Moses, 40 years in the wilderness before he becomes a deliverer after he's seen the burning bush. The people of God led away captive in Babylon for 70 years, and Jeremiah said, go ahead, plant vineyards, build houses, have families, make the best of your captivity. We think about it, we think, wow, I've got to I've got to live my life. I've got to live my life in harmony with God's purposes and understanding story helps me. We read 2,000 years of since Jesus was here and we read of 4,000 years of biblical history before the coming of Christ. We love stories. I was asking uh, several of the office, uh, my coworkers, uh, uh, you know, what, uh, tell, me, tell me some of your favorite stories, you know, and of course, well, for, for me, I, I wrote mine down first because after all I'm speaking, and so I, I thought about Les Miserables, right? Not just the movie, the book, right? A beautiful story of redemption. Jean Valjean, with this silver I have purchased your soul. It's, it's better in French. Lord of the Rings, Frodo, a self-giving, seemingly incapable and weak figure. Does anybody identify? Unable to extricate himself from the power, the temptation of the ring, aided by his friends in his task, but who reaching near Mount Doom are left bereft of any ability to help him, and Frodo must complete his task in a final fight with this demonized golem who finally falls into the fire. Great stories. Why do we like pro wrestling? I asked one of the guys that was on our staff this a couple of years, through three, four years ago. Why do you, a strange artistic fellow who loved the Lord, but he loved pro wrestling. Oh yeah, my dad and I go all the time, you know? I said, why do you like it? You know, it's, everybody knows it's fake, right? <laughs> Even, and and I, I do agree, they are tremendous athletes and amazing performers. But why do we like it? Why do you like it? If I told you his name, you would recognize it immediately. Why do you like pro wrestling? He said, because of the stories. They all have a caricature. I think of C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. I think of Princess Bride, the movie, Mowage. What was it? Uh, I asked Jessica, my name is Inigo Montoya. Montoya. Three people have seen it. Okay. <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy Camp's, uh, I, one of our staff members, Jeremy Camp's story in the movie, I Still Believe, and that is a beautiful story. I can only imagine that movie. For me, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky, for another one of our staff members, Horton hatches the egg. Dr. Seuss. Pastor Ron, it's a wonderful life. 
Who was it said the proposal? Oh, it was Tina, the proposal. Um, one of my daughters said, Redeeming Love, a Francine Rivers novel based on the book of Hosea. One of my son-in-laws said, The Westing House. Not sure what that was. And, and uh, Jessica said, Shrek, I'm telling on you. <laughs> She liked it because, you know, Shrek could be any, you know, he wasn't going to become any, you know, predefined type of styled person. He was going to be himself. He had to learn the lesson of being himself. The reason you're clapping is because that's classic postmodernism. <laughs> there is no ab objective truth, right? You're self-defined and self-intended. Not that it wasn't a fun movie, I, you know in some ways. Stories matter. So knowing biblical stories give us context in the grand narrative, and they help us not to fall, out, fall away with the false narratives. So a couple of stories very quickly from the Bible. Naboth's vineyard. So 1 Kings 21. After this, the following episode took place, I'm going to skim through this quite quickly. Some of you know the story, Naboth, the Jezreelite, owned a vineyard in Jezreel adjacent to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. A few years ago, they thought they actually had discovered the place archaeologically. Pastor Ron could describe uh, Megiddo and Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley and all of that very, very succinctly. So Ahab, this evil king uh, in the Omride dynasty at the uh, late 9th century B.C. He's an evil king, and he's married to who? Who is he married to? Jezebel. Ahab decides he wants to buy, or steal, ultimately, Naboth's vineyard, right? So this is a beautiful, what a beautiful place. That tell Jezreel, I don't know if you can see the words right there, kind of almost center screen to, to the right of those other words, the spring of Ein, Ein Jezreel, uh, that tell Jezreel is where they think the ancient city actually lied, Mount Gilboa up to the north, and of course the great valley, the tremendous valley there, the site of the final battle of Armageddon, Har Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo. All right, so that's a picture. So. Ahab has this desire because, you know, Naboth's vineyard is very close and vineyards were, were important. In fact, uh, a lot of the archaeological research uh, shows that they actually began to provide wine to drink for the soldiers. And so it was a, a hot commodity, especially the, the, uh, the, the grape vines themselves. But, but Ahab just wanted Naboth's vineyard, not for the grapes, not for the wine. He wanted a, basically an herb garden. Yeah, hey, give me your, give me your garden, man. I, the great king, give me your garden. I want to plant some herbs in it. But Naboth is righteous, and he knows that the law says you are not to sell your ancestral lands. And so he refuses, even though Ahab offers him money. So Ahab goes to his palace in verse 4, bitter and angry that Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I'm not going to sell you my ancestral inheritance. 
So then Jezebel, he laid down on his bed, pouted, and would not eat. And his wife Jezebel came in and said to him, why do you have a bitter attitude and refuse to eat? And he said, well, I was talking to Naboth, and I said, sell me your vineyard for silver. If you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. He said, I'm not going to do it. You're the king, Jezebel says. Come on. Get up and eat some food and have a good time. I'll get the vineyard for you. So she starts this evil plot. And the citizens of the country or surrounding the area, they decide they're going to cooperate. And so what they do, they call a fast. Some scholars think there was probably a blight on the land because of the uh, wickedness of the people at the time. And they call a fast ostensibly for religious reasons. And they sort of like issue this curse. They say good things about Naboth, but they kind of are cursing him. And so they gather together, and Jezebel plots to get these two false witnesses, because, you know, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything must be established. And they sit them down, and they falsely accuse Naboth of worshiping some other god. And then, as a result, they drag him out and kill him. And his blood is shed. You know, anywhere in the Bible that blood is shed, God pays attention. He pays attention to righteous, innocent blood that is shed. And so they accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. And so, and then Jezebel just cavalierly gets up and says, well, you know, hey, Naboth's dead. Go take the land. Go take that vineyard. There you go. You can have it. But God sends Elijah. Incidentally, the narrative, in the narrative, just prior to where God speaks to Elijah, the word Yahweh, or Lord, all in, capitalized, all in caps, disappears from the text. Sometimes God's ways are hidden from us, even when he's acting out his own stories. And he withdraws from evil, right? So he sends Elijah, and Elijah goes to King Ahab. He said, what are you doing here, my enemy? You know? And he says, at the vineyard of Naboth, it's never called anything else but the vineyard of Naboth. In the spot where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, they will also lick up your blood, yes, yours. So Naboth repents and, and uh, you know, God pronounces judgment and judgment comes. So we paraphrase the story. What kind of sense can we make out of this? The text says, essentially in verse 25, Ahab sold his soul trying to gain a little parcel of the world. Jesus said, if you, what will it gain a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Ahab, as an Israelite, disobeyed the law of God. He stole ancestral land from an innocent man and he murdered him. He was complicit. Ahab, as Jezebel's husband, is held responsible for Jezebel's action, who later died, was thrown over and died in the and died a horrible, awful death. Ahab, as Israel's king, is responsible for what happened on his watch. His people are wicked and participate in innocent slaughter. So let's now make some links to another story very quickly. I want to tell you to think in this way. Uriah, Bathsheba, and David. Who is the poor man 
in this story? Who is the Naboth of this story? It's Uriah. Because he's so loyal to David that when David brings him home off the battlefield, he will not go home because his buddies are all fighting. Go ahead. Bathsheba's pregnant already because David probably raped her. He certainly objectified her. Bathsheba's pregnant. Go ahead, go, go home, go be with your wife. How can I do that? I cannot do that. David is the rich man. David is Ahab. And so the story goes. The Lord sent Nathan to David and tells him the story. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for a little ewe lamb he had acquired. He raised it, grew up alongside of him and his children. He used to eat his food, drink from his cup, sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, a bat to him. What is Bathsheba's name? Bathsheba, a daughter of Sheba. When a traveler arrived at a rich man's home, he didn't want to use his own sheep, so he goes ahead and, and uh, takes the poor man's lamb. And as Nathan tells the story of this poor ewe lamb to David, Nathan says, you're the man, David. You're just like Ahab. You coveted somebody else's property. You coveted somebody else's loved one. Because Naboth loved his vineyard. And it was his ancestral home. Just like Ahab, you plotted to kill him. And just, David, you might as well be the rich man in this parable. And not only that, you are the rich man in this parable. You are the Ahab in this story. I gave you your master's house, verse 8. Put your master's wives in your arm. I also gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And I would have given you more. But why have you shown contempt? You struck down Uriah. He plotted to have Uriah killed on the battlefield. You remember? Put him to the front of the line. Let somebody else kill him. And then he goes and collects Bathsheba. David is the Ahab. The rich man is Ahab. The rich man is David. The vineyard is Naboth's precious possession. The poor man is Naboth. It links to Naboth's story. But then one more and I'll quit. Let's think how it links to Luke's portrayal of Judas. Judas is another Ahab. Why? In betrayal and false accusations, he aids in the killing of a righteous man. Judas is Ahab. For greed, Judas, like Ahab, acquires a field, which is called the reward of his iniquity. Jesus I'm sorry, Judas spills his blood in the field just as happened to Ahab. Jesus is, for all intents and purposes, righteous Naboth. 
the innocent who dies at the hands of the ungodly for a greater purpose so that God can execute judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. Like Naboth, he owns the vineyard. Jesus owns the vineyard, which is Israel. Like Naboth, Jesus will not sell his inheritance. His vineyard is, his vineyard, he won't sell his vineyard to the false kings and queens of the earth, like Naboth. Like Naboth, Jesus is slandered by two false witnesses under religious pretense, a hurriedly brought together meeting. Like Naboth, Jesus is led outside a capital city by his accusers and killed. So, why is biblical story important? It's important so we know our place in God's story. It's important because it gives us context when we go through difficult times and when we see the innocent suffer. It's important because we learn we can trust God that ultimately his will is going to be done for his glory and I'm a piece of the puzzle. I have a part to play. Whether it involves calamity or wealth and riches, either way, I'm just going to participate in God's will. I'm going to do my part in God's story. Lord, what is your story for me today? So I want to say, story's important, it's instructive. We, we have to learn to trace the links, right? Trace the similarities. Trace the thematic structure. We'll learn so, so much. Jesus is the ultimate jubilee for Naboth and all those like him who have suffered or died from an unjust manner. Jesus is the ultimate answer to the lingering questions and doubts arising from our story. Those who rightfully shout for the need of true social justice need only to think about the story of Jesus because one day he will set things to right. Those who rightfully ask for social justice, right? The oppressed who yield to the Lord will have their day in court. Amen? For ultimate justice will occur, evil will be wiped away, the exalted evil will be brought low, and the low will be exalted. The first shall be last, and the last first. This is the promise of the Lord. It's the final resolution. The theodicy of evil, the way of understanding of why evil finds its final resolve in the justice of God Almighty. And here's another takeaway that I want to emphasize. The unjust suffering of the innocent righteous has always been in the mind of God. Why? Because from eternity, the lamb was slain. The righteous for the unrighteous. In God's mind, Innocent suffering is part and parcel of his plan. It's hard to digest. It's hard to wrap our minds around. But when we understand the ultimate outcome of things, we will know that in God's mind, the suffering of the innocent, the suffering of the righteous, is understood by the viewpoint of eternity. The innocent Lamb of God was to unjustly suffer on our behalf, and we reap the purgative effects for all, to all eternity. 